welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. E-double-E-double-R-U-N, beer run. Nobody? <laughs> no. Welcome to season two, episode five of Breaking the Surface. Um, we are all here today. We're back together after Anthony and I were holding down the fort in the last episode. We're back to be back with Taylor. You did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, in honor, and it's been a while since I think we've all been together. We've been over Zoom and we've been in different places, but we're back and having a beverage together again today, which is great. So we are mm-hmm. drinking the Big Lake Camper Hazy IPA. And this is from Big Lake Brewing in Holland. I'm actually, I've been to this brewery. Uh, my partner's family lives down in Saugatuck, which is right next to Holland. So we've been to some of the breweries around there. I've not had this beer before. I picked it out because I told Taylor, it has a cute illustration on the front of a guy sitting on a bonfire and like a camper truck in the background. And I was like, oh, it's Taylor. It just reminded yeah. me of him. So I, yeah. I kind of got this in your honor, Taylor. Yeah, I am honored, in fact. And when you said before I had looked at the art, you were like, it reminded me of you. And as soon as I saw this gentleman sitting on a log in front of a fire, I was like, that is me. His beard is slightly darker, but that is that is me. So it's undeniable. And I think it tastes great as well. My only contribution to this discussion of this particular beer is that the label is like orange and yellow and gold. And my first sip, I'm like, it tastes like the label. And I don't even know what that means. Maybe it's orange. It tastes gold. I, I mean, it's really delicious. But um, if you're looking for more high quality reviews of beers, just stay tuned for future episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that answer. So, yeah. So today we're going to be talking about two things. We're going to continue talking about Ukraine, which is what Anthony and I talked about on the last episode. It's It was um, funny to me that I don't know how, your reaction, but I remember we had recorded that on a Monday and we were talking about some things we thought might unfold in the coming weeks. And then they kind of all unfolded within mm-hmm. like the next 48 hours. So when we recorded, Ukraine hadn't been invaded yet, but that happened just after we released the episode. We talked about if Trump would say anything, he did in fact go on the record mm-hmm. and say some things. And now we're, you know, probably uh, over a week and a half into this invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We also had the State of the Union presidential address this week. So we thought we'd talk about both of those things because there's a lot um, happening in the political sphere right now. Um, I'm just going to need to interrupt you about the State of the Union. Get it? It's an interruption joke about the State of the Union. Anybody? Oh. Okay. Anybody? We're going to start that way today. Okay. It was a good, it was a good dad joke. Yeah. Okay. Um, he always forgets I have editing power. That's why we let him say these things. Cause I'm just like, I can cut it out later. It's fine. No, it's great. Um, so yeah, I just want to, I guess maybe to start, um, you know, we have a very like serious humanitarian crisis unfolding in Ukraine right now. Um, we're not really sure what's going to happen. I think Russia has been a little surprised at how difficult it's been for them to, take over the country. Um, it doesn't seem like morale is really strong among Russian troops. The Ukrainians are fighting back. They're not laying down and, and kind of taking this. I know Anthony, you know, pastors and mm-hmm. have friends over there. Taylor, you weren't with us on the last episode. I thought maybe I'd start with you and just kind of ask what your thoughts have been about the situation in Ukraine since this has all started. I mean, it's been going on for like a year with the troop buildup, especially since the invasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that as I was listening through your episode to edit it and then post it, that I, it was like, wow, it did not take but a couple of days for these things that you were, you were alluding to and saying could possibly happen to unfold. And, um, it's just a, a really strange and heartbreaking thing that's happening. And, um, the one thing I guess I've had to kind of check myself on is this like romantic romanticization of what's taking place in Ukraine, because you've seen the, this courage from the president, and then it seems to be bleeding down to his people. And, um, just their response as regular citizens that are either um, escaping to safety or taking up arms themselves or continuing to 
try to live within these cities that are being overtaken. And, um, it's really difficult to, to not just romanticize that and look and just be like, this is amazing. Like Russia did not expect, which I think is true. They didn't expect it to be going this way. And now that's not to say that this is to have a guaranteed positive outcome. I mean, it already is. Um, a lot of people have died, but, um, so a really unexpected response, I think, from the Ukrainian people in the sense that Russia and Putin specifically, I think, thought that they were going to be able to kind of roll through Ukraine in a much easier way than they have been able to. And so I'm not sure how much of that is just directly related to the courage of President Zelensky um, or not, but he seems to have really risen to this occasion mm -hmm. and is saying all these right things Well, in some way still. Um, remaining like relatable. Like I've seen clips of him today speaking to the press and he, he just, he wanders in, he's shaking people's hands. He's introducing himself. He's sitting right next to people. He's grabbing his own chair to sit down. It's just so uh, f like different than what we see unfolding here where a president would never have to carry their own uh, chair in to sit down. <laughs> and um, he survived multiple assassination attempts in the sense that I think he had gotten intel um, that allowed him to avoid those assassination attempts. He's refusing to leave Ukraine. Um, he wants to remain there. He was offered some way outs and he said, I don't need a ride out of here. I need more ammunition. And these are just the things that like, action heroes are made of in a sense. And, um, so while I don't want to romanticize that it is really inspiring. And I know that we have had discussions and concerns about say specifically Tucker Carlson and, and his coverage of the situation, almost, um, pandering to Putin in a sense and trying to, um, maybe in some ways convince people to side with Putin, which is just a really strange thing, but there are undeniable, um, instances of that happening. And, we've had concerns and I've had concerns of how is that going to affect the public over here? Like, what are we going to see in terms of uh, this appreciation for Putin? And are we going to side with the Russian people in some weird way? I haven't seen that. And I think Anthony, that you had said that is that yes, it's happening in some of these news networks, but you're not actively seeing people siding with Putin or Russia um, in a way that you might expect after this coverage from places like Fox news. And so it's been in a weird way, I think even drawing us together over here. And that was very unexpected. So I think what's been interesting is that some of the Putin apologists over the last couple of years, when there was just saber rattling happened, there was a lot of, it wasn't even as much pro Putin though. Some of it was as it was, why do we care about Ukraine? Let's just not be pro Ukraine. Let's just let that part of the world sort things out. Let's be hands off, which I think in some ways was a pro Putin stance is exactly what he wanted to have happen. But as the invasion has gone on and as it, it sure seems like Putin has clearly committed some war crimes, dropping particular kinds of bombs, mm -hmm. targeting civilians. I mean, there's been quite a few things now. I think the Hague has already opened up its own investigation, or at least its investigative team. And as you're seeing that, you are seeing more and more language uh, decrying this. And that's become fairly universal. Like, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. um, you even have, I believe, the president of Belarus had a long conversation with Putin where um, Belarus is not going to help. Uh, the president of France has been talking with him. I mean, everybody, the entire world, even China, which was pretty hands-off at the beginning, I believe has at least said publicly that this invasion should end. What I find interesting is that still here in the U.S., you hear that often immediately followed not by more condemnation of Putin, but of all the reasons they think the U.S. has made bad decisions to make it happen. So if we're from the right, it's going to it's about Biden. Like this wouldn't have happened if Trump would have been president. Um, but also, if you're on the left, you're pointing out there was things that Trump did that paved the way for this. And it's interesting to me that the conversation keeps going back to us rather than just going, no, Putin's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, let's just place that blame there. Could the United States over the last number of presidencies have done things that would have been more helpful to dissuade Putin? I'm sure they could have, as I'm sure the EU could have and NATO could have. Everybody could have in hindsight. Mm -hmm. I, I would much prefer we just be at a space where we could go, okay, th this guy's a bad guy. I don't know if he's in his right mind or not. I mean, he seems to waver back and forth between coldly rational and completely irrational. I have no idea. But Putin chose to do this. 
that's where the blame lies. I would like, I'd love to see us just be able to focus on that for a time rather than try to point fingers so quickly. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm really curious at this point, like what is going to happen in the coming weeks and months in Ukraine? Because I don't, I don't know like how this, I don't know how this can all resolve, you know, because they're essentially, there are kind of two, two wars happening at the same time. There's the economic war against Russia with sanctions. And then there's a military war that's unfolding in Ukraine um, and just, you know, trying to read some analyses from a, a variety of sources and trying to understand, you know, different possible outcomes. I've looked at some different heads of state who have kind of given some analysis who have way more experience than I do. And it just the problem is they're going to unfold on different timelines, right? Like mm-hmm. the military is unfolding right now, real time. People are dying every day in Ukraine. And that situation seems like it's getting worse. It seems like, you know, the more Russia feels like they're losing or Putin feels like he's not putting up a good show that there's a likelihood that they could use more of these weapons or they do seem to be indiscriminately bombing civilian areas now. Um, it's going to take a while. It's it's being felt, but it's going to take a while for those economic sanctions to really make a difference in Ukraine. And I don't know if either the oligarchs or the Russian people from either a populist or an elitist perspective can put enough pressure on Putin. I mean, he has built this infrastructure around himself in Russia for so many years to kind of protect his power. I don't know how quickly he can be removed, even if there's internal dissent. So my, my fear is I I don't know if he can back down and I don't think Ukraine can win militarily, although they're, they're doing a good job (laughs) trying at least like Taylor said, I think the best they can do right now is delay and hope that um, it becomes so painful for Russia. Like, for example, they haven't been able to take Kiev. So at this point they could, you know, booby trap the city or get really entrenched. Um, and it could be, you know, weeks or months before Russia could actually take them. Also this whole time, Putin is kind of destroying what would be his prize, you know, like yep. he's, he's gonna, there's like the old, he's gonna inherit, you know, basically a wasteland at, at the way he's going. And I think that's not what he wanted. He's always, you know, prized Ukraine, thought it was taken from the Soviet Union and wanted it back. And I think he thought that they would just come in, quickly overpower the Ukrainian people, remove their government, install their own puppet government, and the people would just sort of be cowed by it and go along with it. And the fact that they're resisting and are fighting back quite strongly, I think has taken him off guard. Now he's kind of having to try to prove himself militarily, but he's destroying what he would be inheriting in the process. Um, so I really don't know how there's a win for either Ukraine or Russia. Mm-hmm. I think the best case scenario, it's a scenario I would hope, aside from an ally like the U.S. intervening military, which I don't think we're going to do because of Russia being a nuclear power. Um, but I think the best outcome would be Ukraine delays enough that Russia and Ukraine negotiate some sort of terms. Possibly part of Ukraine is carved off for Russia. You know, who who knows how that's going to go. But I think. Putin would never call a retreat. He would, you know, maybe come to terms if he realized he can't make any more ground in Ukraine. But I just, in the meantime, I don't know how many more hundreds or thousands of people on both sides are going to die there. Yeah, I think, um, so when you asked my initial reaction to what's unfolded, I think I painted it in almost like a a happy light in terms of, in like this courage is just so admirable and everything is eventually going to work itself out. Unfortunately, good and courage doesn't um, cease the, the movement of evil immediately. So there's going to be, it's going to take a lot of time for this stuff to sort itself out. And I've been listening to different people who are saying um, that even with the economic sanctions that we're, that we're putting on Russia, that's hurting the regular Russian people as well. And, and many of those people are not to blame for what's taking place. Many of them are not even in support of it. And so they're going to be having um, some type of economic collapse and people are going to be really harmed by that as well as any countries that depend on Russia in any big way. And so there were even some countries named, and I can't remember which ones they were, but where Russia was responsible in some way, whether that's import and export of goods for like 20% of the, of these economies in these small countries. And so if Russia can no longer participate in that, then they're losing 20% of their economy right away. And so those are other countries that are going to be impacted by these economic sanctions. And I think it's, it's been cool to see kind of how quickly everybody can come together and we can, we can implement these sanctions on Russia, 
but um, the harm that's even going to come from those is really sad. It seems like a, you know, pick your poison, a lesser of two evils type of type of action. And um, yeah, it's going to, it's going to take a long time to not just heal from this when it, whenever it's over and in whatever form that takes when it's over, but it's going to take a long time for this. Like it's going to sting for a really long time. Yeah. It's a good gut check moment for the world. And what you just described, if, if small economies take a 20% hit, which is going to be disastrous, is the rest of the world ready to step up and support them? Like, what do we love more, our money or people? <laughs> Even this question of, you know, if, if we would stop taking Russian oil, gas prices would skyrocket. Uh, I'm ready to pay that price at the pump mm -hmm. to punish Russia, to make them stop invading the Ukraine. Like at some point we have to make decisions about what's more important to us, our financial comfort or, or people's lives. And I don't mean that just for myself, but I mean that and nations are going to have to, to find some common ground in some way to agree that if we're going to really make this hurt, we are going to also have to be willing to step up and support, like you described, the ripple effect, support the nations impacted by the ripple effect of those decisions. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I mean, you kind of touched on this, Taylor, but I've been thinking about, I've been grappling with this a lot more because I think when Anthony and I last recorded and right before the invasion started, you know, I think it's most of us are in a pro-Ukrainian boat, right? I mean, it's it's a dem dem democracy that's being invaded by an autocracy. They're an ally. They're innocent Ukrainian people dying. I'm still very much in that boat. I think the only layer of nuance that I'm putting on that is what you said about the Russian people or the Belarusian people. You know, you now have... Um, Russian athletes being banned from almost every mm -hmm. major sport. I mean, mm -hmm. they're out of, you know, the soccer tournaments, they're being, you know, they can't compete in the Paralympics. Um, I just saw this morning a headline about a, a Russian soprano being banned from the Met Opera who's been performing there. And there's a part of me that's like, yes, I mean, all of this is appropriate. However, we can punish Russia and make it clear that they're responsible, you know, for this atrocity. And we're not just going to pretend like life is normal. I, I support that. And I get that. I do it is complicated for me because it is an autocracy. The Russian people don't have a lot of say of what Putin does. And they are also going to bear an enormous cost for this invasion without really having any say about it. Um, so it's kind of like, I don't know, living in the U.S. And if you're not a Trump supporter being blamed for Trump mm -hmm. and everything that happened in the last four years, you're kind of like, well, wait, I didn't I didn't support that. Mm -hmm. But you're within the country. And so to the rest of the world, you're going to be identified with the country. But there is a part of me now. I mean, there are Russian people living in the U.S. There are certainly Russian athletes who have very bravely spoken mm -hmm. out about this war at, at their own you know, personal risk. Um, but there is just I'm, I think that kind of motto of erring on the side of compassion that we talked about in the show. There's a part of me that has empathy for the Russian people too, especially mm -hmm. those who are opposed to the war and don't, they're just going to bear the cost of this also. Yeah. That was um, one kind of strategy and I'm not going to be able to name it too specifically, but that they were discussing is perhaps a different way to approach Russia is, is not to uh, simply stop these punishments of sanctions, but to actually promise in some ways to prop them up in the future and work and be willing to work with them. Should they, um, be able to get Putin out of power because a lot of the Russian people, um, well, they, if they were being honest, they would probably say, yeah, Putin's really not a great guy. However, we're living in more comfort than we were in what, like the eighties, seventies. Right. Um, and so certain things have gotten better in some strange ways under Putin than what they were before when their economy was in shambles. And so how that would be carried out, I'm not sure, but, um, trying to figure out how to get Putin out of power um, is really interesting. And he has a lot of maneuvering to do because he comes to power through uh, dishonest ways, but he still does have to um, maneuver through things. He can't just flex his muscle and, and remain in, in leadership. He has to um, pretend. And sometimes that pretending takes a lot of creativity and a lot of work. And so he has to do those things and try to, I think, fake support for him, I guess. Maybe offering, sorry, Anthony, I'll let you weigh in too, but maybe offering pathways for the Russian people if they mm -hmm. want to defect or leave the country, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. we have to be willing to offer that support. Because again, I don't think the Russian people should have to bear this enormous consequence for something that they had no say in. As long as we can give them an option, maybe that's a way forward. What's tough, I think, is that these sanctions are designed not just to hurt Putin, but to make people so unhappy with him that they will themselves rise up. Yeah. So I would think of it, if we would invade Canada and uh, the, 
and Canada or Mexico would help to institute things that would really hurt the average American. Their goal wouldn't be to hurt the average American. It would be to say, American people, put a stop to this. And I, I wonder if that's part of what they're hoping to accomplish. And, and this happens not just economically, but you've seen what Anonymous is doing. Mm-hmm. If they're hacking the airwaves and giving people live feed and giving them statistics of their dead and they're giving them information that the people don't have. There's lots of ways in which I think they are trying to motivate the people to say, you need to throw off the leadership of Putin and put somebody else in power. And I am completely sympathetic to the idea that the average person did not ask for this. And I suspect from the news stories we've seen, the average person is increasingly appalled by what Putin has done. And I think what the world is saying is um, rise up. We don't want to do this to you either. I don't think anybody's excited about it, but something has to be done. Mm -hmm. Have you heard anything from your friends in Ukraine? Have have you gotten any personal updates? Yeah, yeah. They live in Dnipro and as of a, four or five days ago, it was getting shelled. Um, they, they were building a bomb shelter in the basement of their church and then they're housing refugees. I mean, I think over a million have fled already by foot. And so they are pouring through, would that be the Eastern side of the country or the Western side? Western. Western side. Uh, so right now, a lot of the places where there's people I know, like I knew some other people who lived in Kiev and they have left already, mm-hmm. but they had actually lived over by, the eastern border and a number of years ago had gone to Kiev because they were in the middle of all the violence that was happening there. In fact, that couple had helped out in Crimea when it was overrun in 2014, helping get people out of there. Mm. And so as it's moving that direction and is more closely hitting the people that I know, um, they're the, they're boots on the ground kind of people. They're, they're not picking up weapons that I am aware of, but they're trying to give food and shelter and help people get out who need to. Yeah. Sometimes that even includes Russian soldiers. Yeah. Who yep. they are being left out to dry in a lot of cases and kind of approaching situations they didn't at all expect. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the supplies that they need. And they're in some ways being asked to take over their, it feels like they're very own people in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you don't have a military that believes in the justness of their cause, it's very easy for that military to be dispersed mm-hmm. at a certain point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, from what I was reading, you know, some, a lot of those troops were, um, you know, sent to the border, sent to parts of Ukraine on the auspices of training exercises and then ordered into a real invasion. So, it, it, and there's a very complicated brotherhood type relationship mm-hmm. between these countries, despite the animosity and now the outright hostility. Um, so yeah, if you have the Russian, you know, soldiers believing that, you know, that this is not a war that they want to fight, I, he, Putin is going to have a hard time. And then you do have a very inspiring populist figure in Zelensky who has risen to the occasion. And I think at this point is committed enough. I think he associates with the idea of a future Ukraine, whatever is going to be rebuilt after this situation. Um, some kind of Ukraine that is still a democracy in the future that's associated with the West that has a chance to break free of this, you know, Russian history. I, I get the impression that he's willing to die for that. I, yeah. I get the impression mm-hmm. that he's willing to stay there until the end. And if Zelensky was killed, I, that is such an escalation. I mean, it's already a horrific situation there, but to actually kill a head of state um, of a democratic, uh, independent country, I. I don't know what the allies are going to do. I don't know what the right answer is. But again, I don't know that the U.S. is going to go in. My partner, Joe, and I debate this all the time. He thinks we should be in there. They are a nuclear power still, and he is unstable. I just mm-hmm. don't know what the right answer is. Well, I, that was going to be a question I was going to have for you is if nuclear bombs weren't a thing or if Russia didn't have nuclear bombs, don't you think we would already be in there? I know that we're kind of leaning on these uh, kind of stipulations as part of NATO and all the, we have a million reasons that we can point to of like, Hey, we can send you money. We can even send you, um, military supplies, but we just can't send our own people. And they have these reasons for why they can't do that. But I can't help but think that if, if nukes weren't a thing that we would be over there. I, I think so. And, you know, I, I just wonder, I, you know, I think there are people in our intelligence community who are analyzing Putin right now to try to get a read on his emotional stability because he has been a lot more volatile in his speeches. He doesn't seem well. I don't think he's insane, but I think, you know, he's got a lot of hubris for sure, which can be just as bad <laughs> sometimes. 
Um, I think it's hard. He has children and grandchildren. I you know to go down a nuclear path is, is suicidal, you know, for the, I think the entire global community, I don't know that he'd actually deploy them. Um, but it, I guess it depends on his stability, which I don't, is hard to read right now. Yeah. That's a lot of speculation about that. Yeah. So tying in maybe then to the state of the union this week, because that was obviously a lot of what Biden talked about. I'm curious about one thing, you know, it's funny. Americans will be pro Ukraine. We've had a lot of like fundraisers, even just like in our city here. And, you know, people, a lot of people have ties to Ukraine or friends who live there. Um, we have a lot of Ukrainian people in, in our region. And so everyone's rah, rah, rah. And then when it gets to $4 <laughs> gas at the pump, everyone's like Biden. And I'm like, well, this is, this is going to be the cost. Like you were alluding to Anthony, like this is going to be the cost of, you know, having uh, being hostile with a country that provides a huge amount of oil to the world. So Biden tried to touch on that, tried to um, sort of, I think, characterize that for the American people that we're going to have our own short-term hit. I think mm -hmm. it'll level off in the long run, but it is funny that, that people will be willing to be supportive in theory, but not when it comes to gas prices. And I wanted to ask you guys about that in general. And also if you had any thoughts about Biden's speech. So my thought about Biden's speech, I have not watched a state of the union since Bill Clinton was president. And here's why. Want to go on a high <laughs> note? <laughs> I didn't care for Bill Clinton, but when yeah. I would watch him speak, he was such a good communicator. Yeah. I would find myself drawn into everything he was saying. And then the next couple of days, fact checks would come out and you'd go, oh man, he was wrong about so many things, but I just, he convinced, he almost convinced me. And then uh, when George Bush was president, he was such an awkward communicator. I'm like, this is just hard to watch. So I have not watched State of the <laughs> Union addresses in 20 years. I just wait a couple of days and read all the fact checks because that's mm -hmm. generally where you get better information anyway. Because I feel like State of the Union addresses involve a lot of political grandstanding, both by the speaker and the audience, mm -hmm. as was clear this, yeah. <laughs> in this, in this More last than one. usual. <laughs> I, I think there's probably a lot of planning that goes into how, how the audience is going to respond, frankly. So mm. I see it as theater. I'm not that interested in political theater. In reading the fact checks, Biden's speech is like everybody else's. There's some things, he, some things he gets right, some things he gets wrong, some things he gets blatantly wrong. Um, when it comes to the question of like what you're going to do in response to Russia and the oil question that came up, one of the fascinating things to me is that you do have both Republicans and Democrats now that are talking about we should just stop taking Russian oil. That's a lot of oil. Gas prices definitely go up. So there's, we're going to get hit at the pump. And I feel like if Biden doesn't do that, the complaint will be that he's not aggressive enough. If he does do that, the complaint will be that it's his fault. Gas prices go up. It's a lose-lose scenario at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be true with a lot of the different things involving a response to Ukraine. If he doesn't do something, he's weak. If he does something, it'll be stupid. I, I don't know that there's any way to get away from the partisan um, lens through which people view the actions he's taking right now. It's like twin things of gas prices and inflation. It doesn't matter what mm -hmm. administration is in place. They fluctuate, they go up and down. Yeah. And it's, it's just an easy thing to take pot shots at whatever president's in place. But I really, truly think that's usually very independent of anything that it, an individual administration yep. can do. And especially now being in this, you know, huge war unfolding in Europe, but it will be an easy thing for certainly Republicans to aim at Biden. Mm -hmm. Well, Jim Paskey pointed out, that's her name, right? Jim Paskey, who is the uh, spokeswoman for the yep. administration. 10% of, is that what you're going to say? The percentage of oil we're still getting from Russia? Oh, uh, no, oh, but okay. you can bring that up in a second, Taylor. <laughs> she received a question like, um, why don't we work more toward being energy independent? We should be drilling more, et cetera. And her comment was their oil companies have thousands of leases that they're not drilling on. Mm. They can anytime they want to. And she, she deflected the question and said, you should actually be asking oil companies why they aren't drilling more and creating more resources because there are thousands of unused permits. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, that's interesting. I'm sure this administration's position on energy will have an impact down the road. But the leases that oil companies now have now have virtually nothing to do with the current administration. It would have been from previous ones. And it sounds like there's an awful lot they could do if they wanted to. So I wonder if this will spark a discussion too, just about the way the oil business is run in the United States. That's so funny. That's to me, that's a tightrope for a democratic 
position yeah. because usually the pro environmental movement within the democratic party is pretty anti fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty focused on the impacts of climate change. And so to sort of pivot and say, why don't you ask gas companies why they're drilling more? That's not typically something Democrats <laughs> right, want. We right. don't want more first. I actually, and again, I have to give shout out to my partner, Joe's, because we talk about this so much. We've been just in the weeds about Ukraine all week, but he felt strongly. I know it's not a fun populist position in the U.S., but he's like, this is a perfect example to say this is why we should not be dependent mm -hmm. on fossil fuels yep. because mm -hmm. we are bound up in global affairs. We're with bad players. That's been true of Saudi Arabia and countries in the mm -hmm. Middle East. It's definitely true of Russia. There are a lot of bad actors who produce a lot of oil in the world. We know we need to get away from oil eventually anyways for the health of the planet. Here is a perfect opportunity to make the case to the American people. Mm -hmm. This is why it's not only the climate change impacts. It is tying our 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 country and our economic future to, to bad actors. And if we want to be truly independent and not be able to support those regimes, we need to cut off our yep. dependence on oil. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why they raise gas prices. People won't drive anywhere and it's better for the, for the climate. <laughs> this, is a bad, this is a very bad time for me realizing to, to move on an isolated farm like 20 miles from town. Like yeah. every time I go to get milk, I'm like, oh, this is so bad. Yeah. What were you going to say to her? Um, no, I think it was actually a Fox News reporter that kind of pinned Jen Psaki, Psaki on, um, on that question is why, why are we still importing oil from Russia? And, and she had kind of said, well, you'll see that we're only getting 10%. It's like for an oil hungry country like us, I think 10% is a lot of oil. And so I'm sure that that's a smaller percentage than maybe we were taking. Um, but it does beg the question. Like, I think that is a good question. Why are we getting uh, oil from Russia at this point? Um, because Russia, they're kind of unique, my understanding, in the sense that, you know, they export a lot of things like oil, but they don't necessarily manufacture a lot of things. We're not getting goods from them in the same way that we do uh, places like China. And that was actually another strategy I'd heard of how to kind of combat what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is to um, have countries like Germany who are maybe making uh, special specialty parts for for their manufacturing of missiles and stuff is to stop sending that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it, it's one thing to just um, say that you're not going to have your banks communicate anymore and you're going to have these economic sanctions. It's another thing to still be sending to do that and still be sending drill bits that they need to then make missiles that they're dropping on the Ukrainian people. And so I think there are even still some additional tactics that could be used by the the world at large to almost put an end to, or to slow down the, the military approach, which I think Putin has shown that he's very willing to sacrifice um, lives of his own people to try to get whatever this idea mm -hmm. is that he wants. And um, so that might be another strategy that will need to be implemented is not just economic sanctions that causes unrest with his people. And then that unrest means that they don't support him in the same way that maybe they used to. But how do we actually physically stop these tanks from rolling in if they can't work anymore? Mm -hmm. What about rumble strips or yeah. groundhogs? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the, um, the streets have been lined with those anti-tank kind of, they're just big steel uh, balls essentially that are just in cities in Ukraine, just trying to block these tanks mm. from driving through. They're just big steel beams. And I believe they were called groundhogs. And um, it's just what a crazy sight because I didn't realize how many beautiful buildings Ukraine has. Yeah. I mean, there's some architecture mm -hmm. there that is just so cool. And it, it, I, the, the stark contrast between seeing this, maybe what's a museum or a library or a bank in Ukraine, and then you pan you know, a couple feet to your left and, and there's an explosion yeah. that took place. It's yep. wild. Yeah. There was a, there were a few other things that um, Biden talked about in the state of the union this week that I just wanted to touch on a couple moments. I think the most you know famous moment, and I was with you, Anthony, I didn't watch it, the speech live. I will be completely honest. I have a hard time when Biden gives speeches, <laughs> he's not the most gifted order. Mm -hmm. I know he has had speech issues, so I'm sympathetic to that. You know, he's gotten through the stuttering. And a lot of times I think the sort of cheap jokes about his, you know, senility is really just about his yep. speech impediment. And I don't think that that's a compassionate thing to do regardless of partisanship, but he still is not the most comfortable speaker. And there are times where I'm like, Joe, get it together, <laughs> get a sentence out, like calling Ukrainians, Iranians, like little gaffes like this, mm -hmm. you know, this week, it's just like things that you're like, Oh, he kind of wins. That being said, um, what, some of the things that were interesting, I, I want to get your guys' thoughts, the heckling. Okay. 
So sometimes when I hear older politicians talk about the dignity of Congress or, or the, you know, the respect for the presidency, this came up a lot during Trump's administration because he was obviously a very unusual president. And I had so many, um, Republicans in my life tell me that I wasn't being respectful enough of Trump, that he should always be whoever's president should be afforded some sort of respect just because that office has respect. And I think I had a challenge with that because I didn't feel like he himself respected the office. So it was difficult. But this sort of idea of like affording some sort of dignity to our political proceedings, I think I generally agree with, you know, having some civility regardless of the intense partisanship for so in the, in his speech, I'm sure a lot of people saw it, but Lauren Boeber and Marjorie Taylor Greene were getting up and shouting and heckling him. And it happened to come at a time in his speech where he happened to be talking about his dead son and about dead soldiers. And it just, it felt so, in general, anytime I'm ever in an audience where someone's heckling, I feel so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But particularly in that proceeding, I just have not seen that at past State of the Unions, regardless of who has been up at the podium. And I just wanted to get your guys's reaction to it. I thought it was so tasteless and it's not because I lean democratic. I just, in any situation like that, I was like, why are you making such a scene in this particular moment? Yeah. They're just, they're just grifters. They're just trying to get a, a response out of the people that support them. They want, they want to heckle so that then they can have these loud cheers from their base of being like, wow, what courage. And you talk about kind of this decorum. And I always, I think pre Trump, I kind of, yeah, like sneezed at that in a sense of like, yeah, come on. Like you politicians take themselves too seriously. Like stuffy like, like grandpa's chill out. Yeah, being you're like, stuffy. come on, show respect. Yeah. And now I'm like, we've gone so far the other way, it seems, yeah. or or some people have the last six years of we just gotta get regular folk in there that that represent us. And it's like, if that means that there's now people heckling at a state of the union address, then I guess I don't necessarily want that either. Um, but yeah, it's just people trying to to gain these these political points. And, you know, oftentimes in Marjorie Taylor Greene's case, it's coming days after she was appearing at white nationalist conventions and mm-hmm. things like that. So um, I guess from characters like her now it's kind of expected. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really disappointing to see that playing out because to me, it just shows that the tactics of like, you know, rebutting, you know, there, there are opportunities for a speech after the president to kind of rebut some of the things that were said, or to, to say, you know, we have better ideas that we think can work more efficiently. It's like, no, we're just kind of back to just yelling and, and trying to be louder. We don't actually want to combat, um, ideas with our own ideas or, or critically think through things. And it really harms us, the, the regular people. Um, yeah, that's I the just, strategy. Sorry. I, I kind of, I wish in that moment, I didn't see many Republicans sort of acknowledging what was going on. Like they weren't like clapping and supporting. I think they also felt like a little, I do think some of those characters are on the far right of that party and even the party. And so there's a lot of Mm -hmm. eye rolling about their behavior. I just wish it wasn't eye rolling. I wish it was more explicit condemnation Mm -hmm. because I just don't think that behavior is acceptable on either side. And I've even seen it on the local level at school board meetings Mm -hmm. and commission meetings. I'm sure Anthony, you've, you know, you have school board experience just people coming in and thinking like before, at least like, even if you have an issue you're passionate about, I generally saw people speak respectfully. There's always like a precursor to public comment that says, please keep your comments respectful to all parties. And I see so many meetings where people just come in and start screaming and swearing and getting so personal and hostile. And I just, I, that climate is so gross to me. And I, it just, it felt like that too. I, I just wish Republicans, they kind of just seem to ignore them and be like, oh, the crazies are doing their thing. I just wish they would be more explicit and say, this is not okay. You have to distance yourself. And so I, I tend to go and look and see what Mitt Romney said about some of those things, because he tends to be pretty candid about that. And I can't remember his quote specifically about that instance, but it was like, yeah, he's one of the few guys that'll actually speak out specifically against Mm -hmm. those behaviors. And so I guess I can appreciate that. Yeah, I tend to think if you lived in a place where you were not going to have an opportunity to speak, well, then, yeah, when the camera's on you and a microphone's turned on, you're going to shout out what you need to say. But we don't live in that kind of country. Like you said, after the State of the Union, there was plenty of airtime given to the Republicans to offer rebuttals. Everybody's got Twitter now. You can you could say it whenever you want to. And so I, I feel, too, like. We're not the British Parliament where that's kind of, you know, <laughs> embedded into how they do things. I I thought, too, well, you just after it's done, 
You could say those same things on your Twitter feed or in any speech that you give, or you could probably write an op-ed that people would publish. You could make your same point uh, and it will be done with much more class and hopefully with much more clarity. I feel the same way about school boards. It's not like people don't get to talk. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's now a badge of honor that we don't exercise the self-discipline to speak appropriately at appropriate times. Like courageous people will defy norms. Whereas <laughs> I kind of look at it and go, uh, no, I think that might just be obnoxious people doing stuff like that. Right. I think it's people giving into like, even if say Anthony and I disagree wholeheartedly about an issue, but we've each agreed to kind of give each other three minutes to state our case that there's a lot of people who think, well, yes, I got my three minutes, but there's something really visceral inside me that I have to get out. And if I don't get that out, then that three minutes, you know, it didn't do enough for me um, to just to think critically and to have an actual conversation and dialogue about this. They have to also scream about it. And for some reason, we're getting to this point where we think that the more we scream, the more seriously we're taken. And that's not always the case. It really does depend on the context. Like, yeah, if you're uh, in a swimming pool and you're having trouble treading water, scream. There's context to mm -hmm. that. Um, but when you're given a chance or thrown a lifeline, an opportunity to speak, um, then use that. You don't have to scream. Mm -hmm. It's it's crazy. And I guess it, it kind of just depends on what audience you're trying to reach, right? Yeah. Because like, a, like, for example, at a school board meeting or a city commission meeting, generally, if you're going up there and screaming at these volunteers, you know, right. there people making very little money doing this with a ton of time put into it. They're going to kind of tune you out. I mean, most pe most boards that I sit, I watch will sit there politely. You know, you get three, like you guys are saying, uninterrupted minutes to say mm -hmm. whatever you want. But that's just, it's like, do you want to convince the school board of your position? Um, or do you just want to get a couple laughs and chuckles from people in the audience who are like your buddies or whatever, who are on the same side of the cause? Or have someone who's videoing you so you can post it later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally in settings like that, uh, bullies get written off. Like really, right. if that's where you're coming from, I'm probably not interested in what you have to say versus the person in that kind of formal setting, what we've been talking about. The, the person who comes prepared with something that is um, like logically laid out and it's thoughtful, you'll tend to take those seriously, even if you disagree with it. But the person who comes in and just starts dropping bombs, it's just like if people weigh in on my Facebook page yeah. and want to have a conversation and it's pretty clear right off the get-go, we are not going to have a rational conversation about this. I will bail on that almost immediately, both emotionally and intellectually. Mm -hmm. Whereas the person who says, let's have a conversation about this. I have some things for you to consider. I'll give great weight to that, even if I don't agree with it. Yeah. Um, it, would, it just kind of reminds me of, there's a lady I follow on Instagram. I think Sharon Sa Says So is her Instagram. I can't That's remember her name actually. exactly, but she was talking about how uh, an inability to have a discourse among the American people is a national security threat, like a legitimate mm. uh, discourse. Mm. And she's not lying when you look at Russia's strategies and how I think in some ways, he thought Putin thought we were more divided than maybe what we actually were, which is like a strange positive that I've taken from this. Um, but if we can't have conversation, then we are very easy to divide. And that is when it sounds crazy when you say that's a national security threat, but then you see the strategies of disinformation and misinformation that's coming from Russia. That's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to uh, create conversations between people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and someone say on the far, far left and have them screaming at each other. Um, and if once that starts to represent everybody's discourse, then we have major, major problems. We have to speak out against that stuff. Yeah. Russia's goal is to sow, sow chaos. So I read this fascinating article this last week about the type of propaganda Russia's currently doing. So when we think of propaganda, we think of them trying to convince people something is true that they previously didn't think was true. Uh, they were pointing out that the last number of years, I'm not sure how many years, but Russia has taken a different approach. They want people to believe they can't figure out the truth. So they, mm -hmm. they will, um, I think you probably, you both probably know this. The Russian troll farms are responsible for a whole lot of what happens in America's social media, mm -hmm. right? They present stuff for both sides. They want you confused. They want you to read one story that says this and one story that says the exact opposite. And they'll produce both of them mm. because they want you to begin to believe that you can't know the truth. It's a chaotic world. It's a fear-filled world. 
and you can't find your way through it. Because if you feel that way, you will turn to the strong man Hmm. who will simply stand up and say, I can guide you through this. Just trust me. So that's what they do with the people in Russia. More is Russian state propaganda puts out conflicting things just to make people, it's like a, it's gaslighting them in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I can never know truth. And Putin says, I've got this, just trust me. And that's part of what they've been doing in the U S is they're, they're probably the best in the world at it right now is sowing chaos and fear so that people will follow the strong man. Mm. I I thought that was an interesting shift in how the propaganda war is being waged. It makes sense though. Like if, if we can't find out or we, we feel like we can't find out what the truth is, then I'll just, I'll just air with what I, what I want to be Mm -hmm. true. I did it today. I was trying to hang some stuff on the wall and I couldn't find a stud. And I was like, I just want it to be right here. And so I punched (laughs) six holes in the wall trying to find the stud um, because I didn't, I couldn't find it. I didn't piece things together well enough to actually find the stud. And now I have a mess. (laughs) Well, the last maybe as we start to wrap up, there were, there were two things that uh, last things I just wanted to touch on that stood out for me from the state of the union and, they're not related to Russia. They're just other things that I just thought were notable. And I wanted to get your guys' thoughts real quick. So one was, I, it's it's kind of crazy to me, especially given how much we've talked on the show in the past about the pandemic in a lot of different forms. But I don't know how it is feeling for you guys, but it just suddenly feels like we're in this, like we're in this post-surge recovery and it is like, it is normal. <laughs> like it is back to normal. It, like now if someone, it's so like, I can't even remember the last time someone told me they had COVID or if they did, it was just like, not even like no different than having mm-hmm. a cold. Um, and, and I'm not trying to minimize the impacts of COVID for people who have really, you know, suffered from it or, or died or are still dealing with lingering impacts. I'm not trying to minimize that in any way, but even it, within Biden's address, I just felt like barring, you know, fingers crossed, barring another hugely impactful variant emerging, which, which could happen, but barring that it really feels like it's moving into an endemic and not a pandemic phase where we're all just sort of like, we're just kind of dealing with this now. It's like in the background rather than the foreground. And I noticed that even within his speech. And then the other thing was um, he had this moment, a rare bipartisan moment of applause in the audience where he talked about, he said, we should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. The answer is to fund the police with the resources and training they need to protect our communities. That got both Republicans and Democratic support. Um, I think we've talked, if not on the podcast, personally, Anthony, you and I about that phrase to fund Mm -hmm. the police and how Democrats are so bad at branding (laughs) in some ways. But I just, I, I thought that was interesting. Those were two things that stood out to me and I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on both those things. Yeah. I think that, um, as I was reading about those statements and when he had said them and kind of the reaction, I thought that was an important thing for him to say, because that has been, you go down the, the major things that have kind of grabbed our country the last few years and the police brutality cases are one of them. And so I think for, for him to acknowledge that in a way that kind of validates both feelings like, Hey, there's some real, some real systemic issues here with policing in our country. And so the people that, that believe that, and I count myself as one of those people feel pretty good that he's acknowledging that and that there needs to be additional say funding or training or, or whatever new strategies. Um, and then the ones who are kind of convincing themselves that, you know, it's all about removing the police in their entirety and it's just going to be anarchy once that happens. And so to put both sides at ease, I think is really, really important. And I hope it wasn't just performative, um, because as I stated, I believe that there's a lot of systemic issues within the police in our country. And so if it was just performative and he was just talking, then, there aren't going to be those adjustments and those changes made. And so I'm hoping that, that that's, um, that's genuine. It wasn't just an easy thing for him to say that he knew he could get multiple types of people to clap for. Yeah. Yeah. As Beth and I had talked about before, defund the police is such an unfortunate phrase. So bad. It should have been refund the police <laughs> or, yeah. you know, reboot the police. I don't know. Fund them different. Fund I don't know. Anything, right, right. anything besides that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the conversation <laughs> that swirled around that was so frustrating. But I'm I'm glad Biden clarified that. My thought about the the coronavirus, where it's at right now, I agree with you. It does feel like, because the numbers are plummeting, um, that there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel in ways there wasn't before. One thing I was thinking about this week was as all these mandates lift, it took me back to, remember when there was a shortage of cash and everyone was encouraged to use credit cards 
And this, there was this fear that swept the nation. This is the beginning of the creeping fascism. They'll control us by not giving us any cash. And then, of course, it was just a blip and life has gone on as normal with that before. All the discussion in the last two years that once again, all of these lockdowns and mask wearing and everything, it's just creeping fascism to control us, et cetera. These are all dropping. Nobody likes them. <laughs> And they're going to all go away when this is over. And this will all just be a memory. And I, we're going to look back this and go, what were we so terrified about? And I'm glad that that is happening. But I also, also, I wish, I mean, I hope this teaches us something about the next time something like this hits, let's just be level-headed. This too will pass when there's different seasons of life, you respond in different ways. And, um, you know, if you're trying to think of entire swaths of people who want to control everybody else, you got to remember they're having to wear the mask too and then don't enjoy it. Right. <laughs> they didn't have cash either and didn't enjoy it. Like there are neighbors and there are family members and there are friends that are all part of this. And they're, yeah, that's, that remains a frustration for me. And maybe we'll uh, gnaw that bone for a while in future episodes. But yes, it does feel like things are returning back to some form of normal. And that's nice. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone who called like Whitmer, like Whitler or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like that she was, it, it's, it's so true. I, I mean, even the moment I would always challenge that narrative because like, what is she getting out of this? Her, her political popularity is taking a huge hit, yep. potentially jeopardizing, you know, another gubernatorial run. Uh, her family is missing graduate. You know, she's wearing masks. I just, the economy was struggling. The economy was yep. struggling. Like this isn't, Yeah. And I agree with you, Anthony. I mean, I'm hopeful. This is probably the most hopeful I've been just in the last few weeks. You know, we had a restaurant week in Trevor City. I was eating out at restaurants every Mm -hmm. night. They were packed. Um, You know, I've been going to games. I've been traveling and it's, it's not, they dropped the mask mandates everywhere. It feels like it's like right there of going back to normal. And I, and I, I hope it does, but I'm in, I share your hope that will remember some of these lessons that generally, and I've even just covered so much government and I've noticed this people have this cynicism about government, government, which I do understand on a historical level, but oftentimes people think, you know, local school boards, city commissioners, governors, that they have this evil agenda, that they're all like, that they're all tyrannical and they're all got some, you know, someone's in their pocket and they're all getting bribed. And I just, I, as my job to find out if that's happening and it just never is, it's, it sometimes is, but it's, it's so rare. The majority of people who work in public office are good people who are trying their best. They might make mistakes. They will make mistakes. Mm -hmm. They might not do it right. You might not agree with them, but it's so rare that at least on the local and state level that they're trying to make power grabs or trying to control other people, or they've got huge bribes going on or something that evil and conspiratorial. It's just, usually they're just trying to do the best they can. And in this case, trying to keep people alive. Mm -hmm. So I I hope people remember that too, because everything that we feared didn't really come to pass in that regard. Yeah. Is that, is that baked in as Americans that we can simultaneously think that the government and people in positions of power can't ever get anything right while convincing ourselves that they can carry out these perfectly laid plans that everybody is in on? It's like we love to just flip that switch. Ah, oh, they can't do anything. They're worthless. Oh my goodness. There is this. 1,000 step plan that is yeah. going to take away <laughs> our freedom. for the deep state. They're yeah. bumbling they idiots clicking. who pulled <laughs> yeah. off a Machiavellian <laughs> plot. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good dichotomy. Weird. So yeah. Anyways, I don't know. We're probably wrapping up. Um, I guess I would just maybe in conclusion, we'll probably have a chance to talk more a future episodes about Ukraine. My, my heart's with Ukrainian people. My heart's also with the Russian people who mm. are innocently being impacted. War is usually disastrous for <laughs> Everyone involved. I know we talked about that a little bit last time, Anthony. Yep. So um, we'll hope hope for peace and, and hope to maybe do some more updates in a future episode. 